0: Amen. Brad, would you mind grabbing me a cup of water, please? Thank you. God bless you, brother. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians in chapter 1. It would not be an unprofitable exercise if after the service this morning, suppose we Spread these chairs out and, and maybe put them in a circle, and uh, each one of us took a seat kind of in a circle like that, and we went around the room and shared prayer requests. Suppose I asked each individual, "Can you share with us one prayer request, one thing that we can pray about concerning you, that we could pray about for 10 years? Uh, one thing that you want done for you, what to happen in your life, that we can pray about for you for 10 years?" And there might be a number of things that would come up in a meeting like that. It really would be interesting to see the sorts of things that folks would request prayer for. Perhaps some of you have the sort of uh, uh, trial that is with you uh, day in and day out, and you pray for grace and for help in uh, persevering through a trial. And you say, I just just need help. This is going to be with me my whole life long. And so please pray. Maybe some some physical issue or something like that. Uh, Perhaps you have... Uh, unconverted children, another unconverted loved one that's on your heart. And you might say, you know, I just want the people of God to be praying that the Lord would save this person who is in my life, this unconverted child or this uh, loved one. Or perhaps some would say, "Uh, you know, I I really don't feel like I understand God's will for my life. And just pray that the Lord would give me discernment in how I'm supposed to use my life for the next ten years, that He would make His calling and His will for me clear. And all of those things would be very profitable pray for but I believe that we have in Ephesians 1 verses 15 through 23 a prayer that is universally applicable to every child of God in short compass Paul has directed his thoughts and prayers toward one of the most important petitions that can ever be prayed for any individual believer or any group of believers the substance of Paul's prayer in these verses is urgently relevant to us He's not just trying to be polite. He's not just trying to sound spiritual or to wax eloquent. He erupts in prayer to God and issues a a profound prayer of what he wants God to do for himself and for the Ephesian believers. And it's hard to imagine anything more important that you can pray for yourself and that you can pray for other people. So let's read this text, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, You may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, Gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our last three messages in the book of Ephesians have been taken up with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It's this great doxology of praise uh, that Paul offers and that he lays out before the Ephesian Christians. In that section, the Apostle Paul praises God that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a a glorious passage. And really, I feel that we've only uh, brushed the surface of the glory that might be found in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. But there we consider this marvelous work of redemption that God began before the foundations of the world in electing those who he would save and adopting them as sons and daughters, in redeeming them from their sin and forgiving them their sin, and from sealing them with the Holy Spirit and giving them this wonderful inheritance. It truly is a glorious text. And uh, the way the, the, the passage runs when you get to verse 15, it's almost like Paul is so overwhelmed with the glorious realities of the verses that preceded that he just, he just spontaneously erupts in prayer To God. He just sort of explodes and bubbles over with thanksgiving to God. And I suppose we could read it that way and see it that way, that after the glorious realities Paul had been penning, he's just thinking, wow, this, I just gotta thank God for all of this. This is just too wonderful, too glorious. I'm gonna pen a prayer for these Ephesian Christians. But I do think also that Paul had a deliberate purpose in placing this prayer where he does. There are two prayers that Paul gives in the book of Ephesians, one at the end of Ephesians chapter one and one in the end of Ephesians chapter 3, and I think we'd be missing the point if we didn't see the ways in which those prayers and the themes of those prayers were intimately connected to the things that Paul had been considering in the previous verses. But this morning we're going to consider this first prayer, and though it would probably be helpful and profitable to break it up into two messages, since it's one prayer, I feel the burden to preach the entire prayer in this one message. And so there are some things we won't be able to look at in as much detail, but I hope to capture the heart of the prayer this morning. I've broken down the prayer, outlined the prayer under three main headings, three main movements in this prayer, and they are these. The first is in the prayer we have thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Secondly, we have petition. Paul brings to God a petition. And then thirdly and finally, there is doxology. The prayer of petition sort of bleeds into this this eruption of praise to God toward the end for what He has done in and through Christ Jesus. So this morning, Thanksgiving petition doxology. Let's consider these in turn. First of all, Thanksgiving. Please look again at verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's very brief with the thanksgiving, but I think it would be a mistake just to, just to brush over this. Why is it, in verse 15, that Paul erupts with thanksgiving to God? Well, I think there are two reasons in our text. First of all, we have these words, for this reason. For this reason. Okay, How should we understand those words? Well, it could mean, you know, for this reason, and then he, he's going to state the reason in the words that follow. Or he could be referring to all of the things that just preceded and I think that's how we're supposed to understand it. Paul has just been talking about the great work of redemption in Christ, what God has done for His people. He says, so for this reason, for all these things that we've just seen, for what God has done in Christ, I give thanks. He's meditating, he's thinking, he's bubbling over with these thoughts about what God has done in Christ. And he says, for this reason, for, for who God is and what He has done through His Son in the lives and hearts of His people I give thanks. For this reason, I give thanks. But then I think we're given a second reason. A second reason, and that is this report, apparently, that the Apostle Paul had received. He receives this report. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now, Paul, you'll remember is in prison right now. He's in his first Roman imprisonment. We believe the book of Ephesians written in 62 A.D. So Paul, at this point, is probably an old man. We believe he's roughly within five years of his actual death, which we believe was actually by martyrdom. And Paul, here he is in prison. He's had about 30 years of ministry on the field. And he's uh, wondering, how is this church that I planted, how are they doing? And somehow, in a way we are not told, he hears a report of how they're doing, he says, "I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard of your love toward all the saints, and so I give thanks." Now, I don't think this is perfunctory on Paul's part. I don't think this is obligatory on Paul's part. You know, sometimes we say to each other, um, "Hey, hey, brother, yeah, praying for you. Praying for you, brother. Praying for you, sister." And um, a few years ago, I remember uh, keenly the Lord making me aware of how sinful I was, in sort of saying that just as sort of in a colloquial, friendly way, sort of like, "How you doing?" Um, because so often I was not being faithful to pray for those people I said that to. And uh, I had to recommit. If I say that, I want to mean it. And I want to go to God and pray for them if it is that I say that. Well, this is not Paul saying something perfunctory. Oh, I, I just give thanks for you. You're such an encouragement to me. No, I think there are deep experiential things going on in Paul's heart that elicited this prayer over this report that he had heard of their faithfulness. Think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. Think about his ministry think about all the things that maybe you know about the book of Acts and all the things that he wrote to these other churches, what was Paul's ministry like? Well, you might say Paul was the most successful missionary in church history, the most successful gospel preacher, and, and you might be right. You might say his ministry was one of, of great triumph through Christ in getting the gospel out to the nations and to the Jews and to the uttermost parts of the earth, and that would in some sense be true. But it would be incorrect to assume that Paul's ministry was one of naive triumphalism. That he always succeeded wherever he went. That he was a man without hardship and trial. In fact, Paul's ministry, if you study it carefully, was marked by acute difficulty. It was marked by profound trial and hardship. I mean, the Apostle Paul had planted a number of churches. He had been involved in bringing churches into existence. But go back and read uh, uh, letters like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Or the book of Galatians. Paul is concerned that these churches that started off so well are divided, and they're splitting, and they're falling apart, and they're not persevering, and they're not being faithful to love and serve one another, and they're starting to believe false doctrine, and he's, he's anxious for them, and he's concerned for them, and he's, he's watching these churches that he had actually started, that he had seen planted, he's seeing them divide and to fall into false doctrine. Think of how, how sad it would be after the, the year or so of investment that some of us have played in planting this church, if, if you were to leave and move tomorrow and then you hear ten years later that Emmanuel Church, within just a couple of years, started believing the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Or that Emmanuel Church uh, started, started emerging with factions and division and they weren't faithful to love one another. How discouraging that would be. Something that started off so well. Something that was full of so much anticipation and encouragement, and now it's falling apart. Well, Paul knew that time and time again in many of the churches that he had planted. Beyond that, Paul had personally discipled and trained men for ministry who not only left the ministry, they left the faith. Paul knew what it was like to be abandoned by close, intimate brothers in the faith. Not just people who sort of fizzled after they first heard a sermon from him, but people who had walked with him for some years and he was, he was convinced that God was at work in their lives, and then he sees them fall away and leave the faith and bring reproach upon the name of Christ. How discouraging. It's hard to imagine something more profoundly heartbreaking than watching a companion in the faith, a brother or sister in Christ that you've done life with, just fall away. I can remember many childhood friends that, that I was sure were in Christ, I have I have have one in my mind right now. We used to memorize scripture together for a few years. Once a week, we'd get on the phone and memorize a verse together. We used to memorize 150 verses, and he's no longer in the faith. At one point, he he aspired to be a preacher just like me. And sometime when he got into his 20s, he proved to be false. He proved to be unfaithful, and it broke my heart. Well, Paul experienced that time and time again. He also experienced uh, doors of ministry closing in on him. In fact, he's writing from a prison. He was sure that the Lord was with him and helping him. And now it appears maybe his race is over and maybe God isn't going to allow him to plant any more churches or reach any more nations. He knew what it was like to die to particular dreams, places he wanted to go, things he wanted to do for Christ. And it just seems that providence closed in on him. The doors were shut. And he knew those heartbreaks and those difficulties. And then he hears of this report about the Ephesians. That their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is strong. And that they have love toward all the saints. And what had befallen so many other churches had not befallen them. They hadn't fallen into false doctrine. They hadn't fallen into division. They had faith and they had love. And Paul Paul is just so thankful to God that they persevered. So thankful that he got to hear this report of the Lord preserving them and helping them and blessing their ministry. You could imagine uh, in your own life, maybe you've experienced this, where you just know several heartaches, one after another... Maybe, maybe you've been involved in a church split. It seems to me that any Christian who's a Christian for more than 10 years these days has experienced a church split. breaks your heart. I experienced one uh, when I was a little bit younger. It just breaks your heart. It feels like a divorce. It's heartbreaking. And then maybe you're out of town and you're visiting another church and you get away from the division and the tension and the strife that's there and you walk into an assembly of God's people who are loving and who are united. And your heart is just so warm. God draws near to you that experience. And you say to yourself, I needed to see this. I needed to see a church that was abounding in faith and in love. Or maybe you have a friend who's not doing too well. And they're falling away from the faith. And and perhaps they they do, in fact, leave the faith. And then you find yourself some months later at the bedside of a dying saint. And you see that their faith is strong. You say, God, I needed to see that. Thank you for letting me see it. I just... I needed to know that you're at work in your church and in your people. I think that's something of what was in the heart of the Apostle Paul. You might remember at the conclusion of Acts chapter 20, we considered this some weeks ago, Paul gathered all the elders at Ephesus and he makes two predictions to them. He says, "Men, I know this. I'm never going to see you again. Never going to see you again. This church that he had planted, he had been there for three to three and a half years, uh, helping this church grow to maturity. He says, man, I'm never going to see you again. And not only that... I know that when I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in and they're not going to spare the flock. That's why he tells them, you shepherd the flock. But he knows that these people are going to come in and try to divide the church and and destroy the sheep and bring about ruin to the name of Christ. And Paul, almost in a fit of desperation, he bows before them and he commends them to the grace of God and the word of his power. And he leaves to never see them again. You can imagine him on that boat down to Jerusalem. He's thinking... Where have I left these people? Are are they just going to be spoiled like so many other communities of saints that I've seen planted? What's going to happen to them? And then here's the report. That they're abounding in the faith. And that they're abounding in their love toward all the saints. And this is why the Apostle Paul gives thanks. But now secondly, the second part of the prayer. We've seen the thanksgiving in verses 15 and 16. Now secondly, there is petition. Petition. Please look at verse... 16 of chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. Let's read through verse 19, the petition that Paul gives. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here it is, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That's a lot of material there. Very wordy section. But I don't want you to miss this. There really is just one main petition that Paul brings before the Lord. One main petition. He's going to flesh out that main petition a little bit more, but there's just one in the text. The main petition is basically this. That God would give to these Ephesians wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment through the Holy Spirit so that they would know God better. Paul is praying that God would give the Ephesians wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment through the Holy Spirit so that they would know God better. That opening analogy of all of us sitting around in a circle, what would you pray for? Well, this is what Paul wants to pray for these Ephesians. That they would know God better. And that they would know God better through the Spirit being given to them in wisdom and revelation and enlightenment. Depending on what translation you're using, the text either says, verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may, and some say give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Or some translations, if you're using the ESV, it says, gives you the spirit, capital S, of wisdom and revelation. Uh, The latter, the first, would be sort of like that God would give you sort of a a spirit, like a prevailing uh, disposition of wisdom and revelation. And in some places, the word is used that way. Or it could be that he's prayed that God would give them the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, who brings wisdom and revelation Well, I'd love to tell you that there is really some secret hiding in the Greek language as to which one the text is actually referring to, but no such secret um, exists in the original language. But I believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you why. Because what Paul describes about the Spirit, or a spirit, the Spirit, is exactly what the Holy Spirit's ministry is. What is it that the Holy Spirit does? Paul says it's the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the one who brings enlightened eyes to people. So we need to sort of pause for a minute and take a quick excursus on the Holy Spirit, okay? A quick sort of commercial break and talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? If you had to write the Holy Spirit's job description, if you had to describe what it is that the Spirit does, what would you say? Well, I can't think of a better definition... And the definition that is supplied by J.I. Packer in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, he says this, the Spirit's role, both now and in every Christian era, is to mediate to us the presence of Christ. The Spirit's role, now and in every Christian era, even when the apostles were ministering in those early days, this is what the Spirit does. He's revealing Christ to people. He's bringing Christ to people. He's bringing His presence to people. Where on earth does Dr. Packer get that from? Well, let me ask that you turn in your Bibles to John 14. John chapter 14. I want to just scan a few texts, John 14, John 16, where we have more concentrated material about the Holy Spirit than any other passages in the Bible. We are breaking into the upper room discourse, often called the farewell discourse. Uh, Jesus huddles his disciples together. He's saying goodbye to them and he's bringing to them uh, some last bits of truth that he wants them to hang on to. And in John 14, given a great deal of information about the Holy Spirit, and then again it's reprised in John chapter 16. But please look with me. John chapter 14, verse 16. We're asking the question, what is it that the Holy Spirit does? John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The Spirit's job is to bring truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How is it that you will come to us, Jesus? He's going to do it by his spirit. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Apparently the Holy Spirit is going to come to these disciples and He's going to teach them the things that Jesus couldn't presently teach them. Not because He was unable, but because the disciples were unable. He's going to lead them into the truth and He's going to reveal things to these disciples. Now peek over at John chapter 16. John chapter 16. I'm experiencing right now the most horrifying thing a preacher can experience. A missing page from my notes. I'll just, I'll just level with you all. Okay, I found it. Great. John chapter 16, verse 7. I can't tell you how many nights I've woken up afraid that that was going to happen. That wasn't all that bad, actually. John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now look down at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Now back to Ephesians 1. Paul describes the Spirit as being the one who brings wisdom and revelation and enlightenment. This is perfectly in concert with what we see in John 14, John 16. What is the Spirit doing? He's revealing things. He's the Spirit of truth. This is what he does. And what is it that he reveals? He reveals Christ to his people. He's bringing Jesus to people. You know, there are a lot of books out there on the Holy Spirit right now, and they're given titles like The Forgotten God or The Forgotten Member of the Trinity. Um, and I I get what's going on there. I don't think in general we give enough attention to the Holy Spirit, okay? But I don't like the picture it paints as though the Holy Spirit's over here being like, hey, y'all, look at me. I'm I'm over here not getting any attention Mm -hmm. because what the Spirit's doing is He's pointing at Jesus and He's revealing Jesus. He wants people to see Jesus. And so if you've experienced Jesus, if you've seen something of the glorious gospel and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's only because the Spirit has revealed that to you. No one proclaims that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. If you find yourself being drawn closer to Jesus and comprehending the love that is in Jesus and comprehending the person of Jesus Christ and learning His teachings, if you're finding that dynamic happening in your soul, it is because the Spirit's at work in you, which is encouraging, isn't it? The Spirit wants to point us to Christ. He wants to reveal Christ. And through revealing Christ, he's, He's showing us God. He's showing us the Godhead. He's showing us the plan of redemption. Well, I think this is what Paul is praying for in our text. He's praying that God would give the Spirit and that He would come in wisdom and revelation. He'd enlighten their eyes so they could comprehend that they could know God better and they could understand the work of redemption that they have in Christ. It's interesting. Ephesians comes to us, as we believe, a collection of four books that are known as the prison epistles, those books that were written from this first imprisonment of Paul. The other books are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. In each one of those books, Paul includes a prayer, and in each one of those books, he includes a prayer for knowledge. He wants people to know things, particularly about God and what he has done in Christ. So with this being the petition, what is it that I want us to see here? First of all, it's this. Nothing matters more for you. Nothing should be a higher priority for you than than that you know God. Paul is praying that these Ephesians would know God. And not only that, that they would grow in their knowledge of God. That they would grow in their knowledge of God. See, knowing God is not just a matter of memorizing the catechism or knowing a collection of facts about God. I learned when I was unregenerate the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says, what is God? God is the Spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Can I have my sticker now? I didn't know God any better from learning that catechism. How is it that, that, that we come to know God? It's through knowing Him in Jesus Christ and experiencing life with Him, walking with Him by the Spirit, learning more and more about Him, having His truth disclosed to us through the Holy Spirit, having Christ revealed to us in the Gospel. See, listen, knowledge of God is not a static thing. It's not just, here, give me the facts, give me a collection of data, I'll memorize it, I got it. Knowledge of God's dynamic It's supposed to grow. It's supposed to become fuller and deeper and richer day by day. That's what the Apostle Paul wants for these Ephesians. And if you were here today, he would want that for you. That you, brother or sister in Christ, would grow more and more in your knowledge of God. I learned a lot of things about my wife when I met her. Born on August 29th. She grew up in Annapolis. She has one brother named Trey. She's of German descent. Did I really know my wife by knowing those facts? No, it's by marrying her and living with her. And every day I feel like I, I learn more about her. I know her better. The, the, the contents of her soul are increasingly disclosed to me, revealed to me in more beautiful and wonderful ways. You hear this all the time from people who have been married 30, 40, 50 years. They'll say, you know, I feel like I'm still learning new things about my spouse. How is that? <laughs> Did you go on dates? No. <laughs> Well, no, it's because living life alongside a person, walking through trial with a person, walking through difficulty, walking through mountains and valleys with a person, you learn more about them. You grow in your knowledge of them. Well, it's a little bit like that with God. You hear people say this all the time. I didn't, I didn't really know God until I walked with him through cancer or until we had to bury that loved one. I, didn't, I thought I knew God. I didn't know him until my marriage was on the rocks and I had to cry out to God and I had to go to Him and understand Him in ways I never understood Him before. I didn't know God until I entered that particular church and heard the Word open up to me in ways I hadn't before. I didn't know God as well until I met that brother or sister in Christ who pointed me more and more to truth and to scripture. It's experiencing life with God. Knowledge of God is a dynamic thing. And brothers and sisters, we need to be uh, uh, fervent and active and vigorous in trying to pursue deeper and richer and fuller measures of the knowledge of God. This is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, that we would know God, not just that conversion, but that we would continue more and more and increasingly to grow in our knowledge of God. There's a second thing I think we need to see here, and that's that we should pray this, this prayer in particular, for other people. When you pray for brothers and sisters in the church, it's in every way appropriate to pray for mundane things. My knee's been acting up. It's really bothering me. Please pray. We should pray for those things. Didn't the Lord Jesus tell us to pray for our daily bread? We should pray for the mundane. Hey, I got a test coming up or, you know, or an interview for a job. Please pray for that, okay? But do our prayers ever rise above the mundane, above the the sort of just the daily, regular, ordinary things? Do we pray this for one another? Lord, I pray for this brother or sister that they would grow in their knowledge of God, that the Spirit would be given to them and that they would grow in wisdom and in revelation and enlightenment, that they would know the truth in deeper and fuller measures. We ought to pray this for one another. And we ought to, we ought to ask people to pray this for us. Don't just pray for, you know, I'm afraid there's some moisture in my basement. Pray that it'll be no big deal. Or The, the, the check engine light just came on. I'm going to the mechanic. Please pray that it won't be more than $100. We should pray for those things. But let our prayers rise for one another above the mundane. I pray for brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. God, grow them through your spirit and the knowledge of God. Not just for knowledge's sake, but so that through knowing God better, they can endure trial. They could overcome sin. They could bless and serve others. They could be used mightily in your kingdom. Because it's those who are closest to God who know God who He is pleased to use most mightily in His kingdom. Now, if you look at our text again, this main petition, that is having the Spirit given to them, that they would have wisdom and revelation and enlightenment, Paul actually fleshes it out a little more. But I want you to see, that there really is just that one petition, growing in the knowledge of God through the Holy Spirit. But there are certain things he wants them to actually comprehend, Okay, specific things. There are these, first of all, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. That you may know... What is the hope to which he has called you? Then it is, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe? I'm just very quickly going to scan these. First of all, what does it mean when Paul prays that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? Very simply, I believe the hope is what is contained in verses 3 through 14. That's the hope to which he has called us. It's not a wish. It's not a whim. It's not, man, I hope somehow the Mets can make it to the playoffs, which is an impossible hope. It is, I have a hope hidden in God, a hope hidden in Christ, a hope that is banked on what God has done in Christ before the foundations of the world. Totally objective, totally uh, beyond my control to maintain. That hope is hidden in God, and it's that hope to which we are called. It's that that Paul wants us to comprehend Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This could refer to one of two things. It could refer to the inheritance that we enjoy as believers. And we do enjoy an inheritance. We're going to inherit the earth. We're going to inherit glory with Christ. Okay? We have a goodly inheritance, to quote the King James Version. Or it could refer to the inheritance that Christ has in us. You're familiar with this idea? It's taken up in a number of places. Remember, God in the Old Testament referred to Israel as His inheritance. His people were His inheritance. Well, wonder of wonders. The Bible teaches that we, brothers and sisters, redeemed men and women, those who have been saved out of our sins, were considered Christ's inheritance. We're the bride for whom He died. That's an amazing thing, that we would be considered this inheritance that God is giving to his son. I think that's the idea that we have in our text. It's this inheritance that Christ has in the saints. I think we have a song that captures it quite well. I think it's so church arise, they have that line, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. That's people like us and that great company of believers all throughout the world. And Paul wants us to comprehend what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Thirdly, He prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power, verse 19, toward us who believe. Let's read on. According to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The petition in verse 17 is that they would know God. What is it that he wants them to know? Verse 19 says he wants them to know of the power that is found in God, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he sort of bleeds into doxology, saying that power is found in Christ. The same power that raised Jesus for the dead from the dead is available to you. The same power that seated Christ and and placed everything under his feet, that power is at work. It's toward, it's directed toward and in believers. I think what Paul wants us to appreciate is that Christians have unlimited resources in the power of God. And he's praying that these Ephesians would recognize that. You have power available to you. You have power at work in you. You have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of God. That's available to you. Stop fighting your wars with sticks and rocks. God has provided you with tanks and with aircraft carriers and choppers and nuclear weapons. You have assets at your disposal. You have resources at your disposal. Why do you think it is that so many Christians live their lives in fear and in anxiety? for the record, I believe that there are so often physiological reasons why people struggle with anxiety. But so often you'll see people struggling with anxiety, and they don't know, are they going to make their rent, or they're so anxious over a particular decision, or their kids, and they're really struggling trusting the Lord. Often the reason for that is that they believe the lie that my circumstances are greater than my resources. These things that are against me, these hardships in my life, they're greater than... And the power that's available to me. I don't have the weapons to fight this thing, and so it produces anxiety and fear. Why do so many Christians become hopeless in their struggles with sin? It's because they think the greatness of their sin, the greatness of temptation in their life is greater than their resources. They think, I'll, I'll never overcome this. I'll never, my, my father struggled with anger. I'm always going to struggle with anger. Okay? I, I, I'm never going to get over this, this struggle I have with, with lust or temptation. There's no way I can It's just always going to be with me. That's not Paul here. Paul is saying, you have power available to you. You can overcome your sin. The same power that was at work in Christ, same power that raised Him from the dead, you have that with which to fight your sin. Why do so many Christians feel sort of depressed and hopeless over their role in the kingdom of God or whether or not they're going to really accomplish anything great for the kingdom? Could it be that they don't realize the power that is available to them? First John 4.4 4 says this, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You have unlimited power and resources at your disposal. And it's like Paul is praying, You have to tap into that. Those resources are there. Stop fighting with sticks. You have the power of God available to you. But then thirdly and finally, this prayer, sort of seamlessly, you might not even notice it in the way that it unfolds, it it bleeds into doxology. And, And this prayer for power is really the link, that they would know the power of God. And Paul just basically riffs on the power of God. Look again at verse 19. For the sake of time, I can't consider everything I'd like to consider in these, this text. But let me share just two ideas that I think Paul wants us to see here. First of all, Jesus rules and reigns over spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus rules and reigns over spiritual forces of darkness. That verse, verse 21, placed Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. It would be easy, as, easy for us to think, well, that's Donald Trump. That's Vladimir Putin. That's the leaders of this world. Not so, actually. Please turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We see the same exact language used in Ephesians chapter 6. And it's describing spiritual forces of darkness in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. Verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness and in the heavenly places. These are the ones over... Of course Jesus is over Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and the other leaders of the world. He's also over these spiritual forces who are far more powerful. He's over Satan. He's over demons. He's over darkness. He is over the rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly places. Our God reigns over these. He reigns over idols and false gods. He reigns over darkness. Jesus has, put, has had everything placed under his feet. And he rules over every spiritual power In the heavenly places. We must still fight. But we fight under the banner of the one far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. But finally in conclusion there's a second thing I want you to see in these verses. And I'll close with this. You have to see here. It's just just right there on the surface that Jesus is Lord over all. Verse 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus is Lord. He reigns. He rules. He's over all. He has all dominion. Everything is under his lordship. And let me say to you today, Jesus is Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. Jesus reigns whether you acknowledge Him or not. I want to say something to you who who have not acknowledged Jesus as Lord, or you're not sure He's Lord, or, or whatever. I want to encourage you, especially you children, to call out to Christ and to recognize that He, in fact, is the Lord. This is what the Bible teaches. Jesus is Lord over all. I want to ask you, will you recognize that now? Because you will recognize it one day. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Humor me for a second. Everyone put their hand on one of their knees. Put your hand on your knee. That knee will bow before the Lord. And I won't make you put your hand on your tongue, but that tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And for some of us, oh, happy day. That'll be the most wonderful thing we ever, to bow before the Lord. And when I fall before Him my tongue cries out, Jesus is Lord, it's going to thrill my heart. It will be a glorious thing. But if you have not acknowledged in this life that Jesus is Lord, you will bow. And you will confess that Jesus is Lord. But it will be terrifying to you. It will be a terrible day for you. You will bow. You're going to see the glory of the risen Savior coming with His armies. You'll bow. You'll proclaim. I I can't say anything else. Jesus is Lord. It's right in front of me. But you will know what that means. You didn't call on the name of the Lord when it was offered to you in sermons like this. And you will know that judgment is coming for you. That though you acknowledge it in that day, it will be too late for your soul. But you you have the privilege today to bow that knee to Jesus Christ and to submit to His Lordship and to believe on Him through the Gospel and to confess with Your tongue, Jesus is Lord. I gladly say from my heart that He is above all rule, all power, all... He is Lord and He's my God and I will worship and serve Him. I call on You to do that today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that we would have our eyes, our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We confess he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God, you have put all things under his feet, and you have given him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, we pray that you would work upon each heart today mm. to bow the knee and to confess with the tongue gladly that Jesus is Lord. Amen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.